Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. And this is the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. This week marks part three in our series on the satanic panic in the 1980s and 90s. Um, little break last week for the Paracon special, but I hope you all found that interview with Charles and Nick enlightening. Nick just jumps into stories uh, at the drop of a hat, so we're going to have to have him uh, on the show again sometime. Yeah, some pretty wild stuff, as uh, Johnny Carson would say. I was going to say great Carson impression. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we we had Paracon in the meantime. We did that this weekend. Uh, yeah, great turnout. I think over the two days, we probably met a thousand people. There were definitely a thousand people who came through the hall. Uh, I would say over a thousand. Yeah, maybe, maybe a thousand came to our table. <laughs> Had a great time meeting all of you. Uh, so thank you. And if anybody is joining us for the first time because uh, they met us at Paracon, thank you. Welcome. Yeah, it was a pleasure to meet all of you. Um, it was just such a fun time. It was fun to be around like-minded people and get to shop around. We got a little squid in a jar, a little octopus, I think. Yep. Um, I got some stained glass. We got a couple of little posters, I got, books. I spent too much money on a um, colored vinyl two-disc set of the Thing score. Mm -hmm. You were very Thing-heavy this weekend. Yeah, because I also got a Thing theatrical poster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got an Elvira Blu-ray because I love her. Uh, I also, She's a very titular queen. At the same booth, uh, this is our friends, The Archive, by the way, mm -hmm. in Milford. Yes, and they also are associated with uh, Vinegar Syndrome, which puts out a lot of these Blu-rays and movies that have never been on DVD. Really cool stuff. Yeah, and I also picked up at their table a 2LP spoken word reading of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror uh, which I listened to as soon as we got home, and the third side. The yeah, first side I thought it was just one, one, you know, two-sided LP. And so I put on the the second disc, and the first side began. But this was only prequel to the true Dunwich horror. And I heard Carrie from the other room go, "Fuck." Yeah. <laughs> Listen again. I thought it was one vinyl, um, and this was. There was a lot of prequel going on. I, it was so long. <laughs> it was very cool, and they had like very atmospheric music. Sean lit a ton of candles, um, which you know for us is not about romancing, but is about setting a spooky mood. Always. Uh, he he was like laying there in the dark uh, on the couch, just vibing. And so eventually, I went to you know scroll my TikToks in the other room, and I couldn't believe this was still going and it was like three discs right no two discs four oh, sides yeah okay but this was only prequel <laughs> hilarious <laughs> yeah so it was it was a great time um we had a blast we we spent some time with father of the pod paul ferrante and my mom and he sold a an buttload of books uh record-breaking day for paul ferrante yeah, yeah yeah so we all had a great time yeah um, so thank you to everyone we met there. Thank you to everyone who might be joining us for the first time uh, mm -hmm. right now. And let's jump into part three. By the way, uh, this is a loose series. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. the, the context of the Satanic Panic might 
help you if you wanted to go back and listen to parts one and two of this Satanic Panic episode. The first but really, one you could with, jump in wherever. Yes, for sure, you can jump in wherever. Our first episode dealt with uh, Satanic ritual abuse panic in daycares across the country in the 80s, and especially at McMartin Preschool. And our second week dealt with Dungeons and Dragons, heavy metal, and unfounded satanic fears thereof. Yeah, it's a little closer to like the true crime or I guess recent history type of stuff that we do. But for those who met us at Paracon, we will be diving into the paranormal as, as soon as this series is over. Um, we basically do a third true crime, a third paranormal, and like a third other stuff. You know, aliens, conspiracies, weird history, all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, just stick with us and there'll be something weird and wonderful coming up for, I think, all tastes out there. And we do have a weird story this week. It just might not be a supernatural one. Mm -hmm. This week, we're expanding this discussion of satanic panic with a conversation about the child murders at Robin Hood Hills and the men who were convicted of those murders who would come to be known as the West Memphis Three. Now, Carrie, the wave of satanic panic had mostly broken by the early 90s. It wasn't dominating television anymore. Geraldo Rivera was no longer putting out specials about Satanism specifically. <sighs> and certainly all the stuff about Dungeons and Dragons had, had waned. Like we talked about last week, by this time... D&D had stripped out anything that could be mistaken for Satanic that was in the game. and um, Yeah, they changed it from, like, devils to demons, stuff like that. And Christian watchdog groups had moved on to something else to be mad about, because 1992 is when Mortal Kombat came out mm. on the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. And video game and movie violence would become the um, the new thing for there to be moral panics about for at least the decade following that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that continued all the way through. Um, I mean, I guess it still sort it's of still happens. still kind of there, yeah. Video game violence. It's not as ridiculous as it used to be. But in 1993, there were still pockets of the country where the idea of satanic occult threats was still, for the people living there, very real. At least in their minds. Yeah, and it's probably not a coincidence that a lot of these pockets are heavily religious, so nope. the devil is very much at the forefront of their minds. That's right. And this is a Bible Belt story because we are headed to West Memphis, Arkansas in May of 1993 as we begin this story. I'm not going to bury the lead here. Uh, three young boys, eight-year-old boys, were murdered in West Memphis, Arkansas on May 5th, 1993. Three teenagers ended up being convicted of the killings uh, as part of a satanic cult ritual, and that kicked off a nearly two-decade-long battle in courtrooms and across the mass media. You're probably, you've probably at least heard the words West Memphis Three, even if you're not familiar with this story. Mm -hmm. um, if you are familiar with this story, it's likely through one of the many documentaries that's been made about it. HBO has done three in their Paradise Lost series. And uh, Peter Jackson did one back in 2012 called West of Memphis. And there was also a movie made based on a book. The best book about this case is The Devil's Knot by Mara Leverett. We have that, I think. That was also adapted into a film, a drama film in 2013, with like a pretty good cast, but... Bad reviews. I've never seen it because of that. Yeah, I've only seen clips from this movie. It's like Reese Witherspoon, Colin Firth. Bruce Greenwood. The great Bruce Greenwood is uh, in there. One of the best. 
No, I genuinely think that he's a great character actor. Yeah, I know. Dane DeHaan. It's a, a wealth of good character actors. I don't know who that is. Neither do I. I'm just throwing, oh, okay. throwing names out. <laughs> the point is, it's been a, a widely covered case, and uh, those documentaries, and Devil's Not, by the way, all uniformly uh, take the position that the men who were convicted of this crime should not have been. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> But hopefully that wets your whistle a little bit, intrigues you for what's coming next. Because we're going to have to get through some pretty unpleasant stuff on the way through this very interesting story. Yeah, so this is a def- definite trigger warning episode, right, Sean? Yeah, if, if yes, if murdered eight-year-olds triggers you, then this is that. And if it doesn't, I don't know, assess yourself, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, yes, please. Uh, either either prepare to be triggered or prepare to seek some kind of counseling mm. that you sorely need. <laughs> because we are talking about eight-year-olds here, and, and there's nothing funny about that. Uh, these boys were Stephen Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. They were all in the second grade. They were eight years old. They were all Wolf Scouts in their local Cub Scout pack. And they were best friends. The night they disappeared, Stephen, Christopher, and Michael were riding bikes and running around their neighborhood, just kind of being kids. Um, it's a thing that's <laughs> disappearing, I think, more and more as uh, as the world just gets more aware and scared. But um, even when I was a, certainly when our parents' generation were kids, but when I was a kid, um, yeah, we would just run around the neighborhood. We would kind of in the summer, especially, leave the house in the morning. Parents wouldn't see us till dark. Well, I, <laughs> Sean, I don't think this story is going to encourage people of our age range to do that again and let their kids run around. Well, it's stories <laughs> like this that made that stop happening, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, I don't know, the, it's not worth it's not worth the risk, even if it's a minute one. Uh, and so you get you get to, uh, but boy, did we have a fun time running around the neighborhood shooting our own season of Survivor or whatever it is <laughs> we were doing. Harry Potter tag. Yes. A game I invented. Uh, we'll have to get into the rules of that on a Patreon episode. <laughs> now, Stephen, Christopher, and Michael had gotten out of school at 3 p.m. on May 5th. And apparently Christopher Byers didn't have a key. And people were to kind of... To his house. To his house. He's eight years old. But people were kind of in and out of his house that day. His dad had to bring his... Uh, brother to a court appearance his mom was at work uh, so chris had to wait outside until somebody got home and he was supposed to wait mm-hmm. but it sounds like he didn't um <laughs> pam hobbs uh, was stephen branch's mother she was cooking dinner when uh, michael moore came over to invite stevie branch over to his house this is shortly after three the boys are all out of school and they were shortly followed by Chris Byers, who came by asking where the other boys were and was told by Pam that they were uh, headed over to Michael Moore's house. Mm-hmm. At 3.10 p.m., John Mark Byers, Chris Byers' dad, came home expecting to find him waiting to be let inside, uh, but didn't find Christopher. Okay, well, that's because he's going to look for his friends Stevie and Michael at Michael's house, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Pam Hobbs has just sent the boys off. Her husband, Terry, uh, the stepfather of Stephen Branch, gets home at 4.15 and then drives Pam to work at 5. They haven't seen the boys since. Okay. Now, at 5.20, John Mark Byers, who at this point was probably getting pretty irritated at his son for not just waiting to be let in the house like he was supposed to, uh, picked up Melissa Byers from work. 
And when they got home, still no sign of Christopher, but there were signs that he'd been there. Been there at some point or been there since he left to pick her up at work? Been there since school got out. Okay. And when Byers left to go pick up his other son from that court appearance I mentioned, he found Chris just riding a skateboard down the street. Uh, Byers said he brought his son home, gave him two or three licks with the belt. Mm. West Memphis, 1993. Mm -hmm. And he told Chris to get to cleaning up the carport area, which is what uh, Christopher was doing when his father-in-law left. You mean stepdad? His stepdad, yes. (laughs) Sorry, not (laughs) father-in-law. I think West Memphis has a bigger issue going on if there are children getting married. Now at 6.30, John, who he goes by Mark, by the way. It's John Mark Byers. He goes by Mark. So at 6.30, Mark Byers returns home and finds that Chris, once again, is not there. He's not cleaning up the carport like he was just told to. Oh, boy. What time is this? 6? 6.30. Okay. At this point, he loaded up his wife and son into the car, and all three of the Byerses drove around the neighborhood to search for the fourth one. They also informed an officer at this point, but they were told that they should wait until 8 o'clock at least to make a police report. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what they did. At 8 p.m., the boys were reported missing by John Mark Byers. Now, at 8.15, he ran into neighbor Diana Moore, who said that she had seen the boys together. This was the first that uh, Byers had heard that his son had been with the other two. For the second time that day. Uh, yeah, well, no, he didn't know they'd ever hooked up. Oh, I see. Because when he found Chris, he was riding a skateboard. By himself. himself. Okay. So Diana Moore says she saw the boys together and she and the three Byerses immediately just go and start looking for the boys. That was at 830. They kept searching until 1030 that night. Mm -hmm. At some point in the intervening time there, Byers did go home to change into his overalls. So just in case this question comes up later, there is a brief window there where he's alone. Okay. Not that it will. No, certainly not. And the fact that we're addressing him by three names is not a thing. Meanwhile, <laughs> it was apparently, I don't know why my notes are so specific here, but at 9.18. Oh, excuse me. Terry Hobbs picked up Pam Hobbs. This is Stephen Branch's mother and stepfather mm-hmm. uh, from work. And Pam immediately, because she got in the car and her other, their daughter was in the car. She said, where's Stevie? And, they, and the little girl was crying. She said, um, Mom, we can't find him. Oh, boy. And so Pam, as soon as she got home, I probably needless to say, went out and started searching. Yeah. At 1020, an officer Moore from the West Memphis Police Department joined in on the search, and he was there out there with them till 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, Mark Byers called the police to request a search and rescue vehicle. And then he drove over to the Blue Beacon truck wash nearby. Uh, He ran inside, told them he was looking for his son, and then he and his uh, other son drove around the parking lot, circled for uh, like a while, just shouting for all three boys' names and honking the horn. Was this like a a central location? Why would a child be at or near a truck wash? Well, I think the idea was if they were playing along the creek, the nearby creek, the creek bed ran all the way up the truck wash. I see. This will come up again. Okay. And the boys, it sounds like all of the kids in this town did play in the woods. That's all there is to do in West Memphis is so this catch is basically, frogs and snakes. It's basically a Stephen King story with the worst outcome. Yes. Yes, that's very accurate. Mm. The search started fresh at 8 a.m. And Steve Jones, the juvenile officer, called in for work. He was told the boys were missing and said he went out searching right away. 
There was a human hand-to-hand chain search down through the whole um, creek bed. Eventually, the boys' bikes turned up. At the creek? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Steve Jones says he was checking out the Robin Hood Trails area, and he saw a sneaker lying in a ditch. He called for backup. Some more officers uh, responded. Sergeant Mike Allen, this is according to Steve Jones here, Sergeant Mike Allen actually fell into the water, caught his leg on something like he tripped. And he was like, oh, I've got a log or something here. And as he pulls his foot out of the water, uh, it's caught on one of the boy's legs. Oh, Jesus. That is a Stephen King story. And that is where they found Stephen Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. So they were submerged in the water. They were in two foot deep water, so not totally submerged. But hard to see in the dark, I guess. Uh, actually, this was like 1.45 p.m. Um, I guess they might have The been... next day? Yeah. Oh, sorry. It, they might have been fully submerged in two feet of water, I guess. Hmm. And they were found like a few minutes apart. It's not like, oh, there they all are. All three of the boys had been stripped naked, hogtied with their own shoelaces, mm. and apparently beaten to death. Oh, God. Stephen Branch and Michael Moore appeared to have drowned somewhat. There was water in their lungs, but they the cause of death was listed as the multiple injuries to their head, body, and limbs. So they were still alive when they went in the water. They were, yes. Christopher Byers had not drowned, so he was likely dead before he reached the water. He appeared to have taken worse physical abuse than the others. He was cut up worse all over his uh, arms and torso and face, and his testicles had been cut off, and his penis had been cut. The skin was kind of cut uh, in a circular way around the whole outside of his penis. Oh, God. Yeah. This is Chris Byers? That's Christopher Byers. Oh, Jesus. Now, the the medical examiner initially said... There was evidence of possible sexual assault, and I'm so sorry that I have to say this, but uh, because the boys' anuses were dilated? Well, in sex crimes like this, where where someone is killed, maiming the genitalia isn't uncommon, or, you know, it it might have something to do with um, the shame that the person feels enacting the crime it might be like a pedophilic sort of thing well you mentioned the sexual nature of the crime um later passes at that same uh medical report said that there was no evidence of uh sexual assault here of rape that is um because uh anal dilation is just a thing that happens to when you die everyone after they die yeah the <sighs> medical examiner in this case um well we'll get into his qualifications later so not to belabor the point, but just so I'm clear, the only genitalia that was maimed was Christopher's. Yes. And there might have been multiple boys that were either sexually assaulted or it was just a result of death. But the only like cuts and things were to Christopher. That's uh, all. Aside three, from being beaten. All three boys had cuts and scrapes. I, I mean, cuts. Oh, to his genitals. Yes. Uh, that is correct. Okay, so, yeah, it really does seem like he was the focus here. That Especially since he died before he hit the water, so, you know, his injuries are worse. He, he's probably killed first. That has been suggested, or at least pointed out. 
the boy's clothing was found nearby. Some of it twisted around a um, stick that had been thrust into the mud. Uh, not totally clear whether that was uh, intentional or if the, uh, the water had washed them that way. Was there anything missing from the scene? Like the, anything of the boy's? Uh, the boy's clothes, I think, were accounted for. There's no mention of like, oh, and all of their socks were missing or anything Well, like just that. anything that might tie someone to the scene, I guess. I'm not certain that there was... N I'm not certain that all of their clothing was present, but none of it comes up later in this case, if that helps. Yeah. Okay. Oh, God. So were the parents... Um on site when this discovery was made or was it just the police out there no you can see in paradise lost the parents as some of the parents as they get the news and it's fully like mothers fainting wailing um that yeah. that kind of thing the police you know came back to the to the neighborhood and and uh, uh brought the parents around and, and told them <sighs> there was only you mentioned you asked what was missing from the scene um, there was only a tiny, tiny amount of blood at the crime scene. Such a small amount that it was never even tested. Huh. And it was pointed... Well, that's strange if they were beaten and then thrown in the water. Or fell in the water or whatever. It's it's really... We'll talk about this more, trust me. But it's really strange if this was the scene of the crime. Ah, Yes. The boys are cut and the, the boys are cut all over the place. And uh, the, it just seems like there would be a lot of blood um, if they were cut up there. Now, the genital mutilation, um, do they say that it happened while he was alive or after death? Because that could also affect the amount of blood. Because otherwise, there, there must have been so much blood from that. But if he was already deceased, he wouldn't be bleeding like that. Postmortem. The genital mutilation was postmortem. Okay, so that at least explains why there wasn't puddles of blood everywhere for that. But um, yeah, it might not be the scene of the crime. It was also noted that there weren't any mosquito bites on the body, which is interesting. Yeah, it's a creek. So if they were lying out there alive for a long time, you'd expect mosquitoes to have bitten them. Um, obviously, mosquitoes don't bite corpses. Right. Okay. Hmm. So, we had one of the most horrific murders in this small town's history, and we had no suspects uh, as, the, as the sun set on that first day. Jerry Driver, the junior probation officer, says um, he was sort of the, the main occult expert at the West, West Memphis Police Department. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, he had a book? In the Peter Jackson movie, he says, yeah, he'd read like a couple of books and watched a training video. So, like, I'm the occult expert of the West Memphis Police Department. Oh, you can out-occult the <laughs> occult experts at the West Memphis Police well, Department. That, no yes, problem. I would hope so. Anyway, Jerry was asked by the department, uh, Hey, Jerry, you know about this occult stuff. Could you look into cult activity um, among people who are on probation right now? Uh, kids who are on probation. Now, why did they jump to that? The prevailing opinion of the West Memphis Police was that this was this crime obviously had occult overtones. Is that just because of the mutilation? Is it because they were kids? It's because they were kids. It's because of the mutilation. It's because of the, the way they were tied, I assume. I don't know. That doesn't seem occulty to me. It was a full moon the night of the murders. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Look, they decided this was an occult crime. Apparently, yeah. This was very early because they asked Jerry Driver who he knew, who was on probation, and... um. 
was into the occult, and he said right away he thought of Damien Eccles. That's too bad about his name. Damien. Uh, he chose that name. We'll get to it. Oh, he wasn't born that way. He wasn't born that way! <laughs> now, Jerry Driver would later testify in court that he once saw Damien wearing a long black duster coat, and that he thought that was kind of weird. Nice. Yeah. I like that. how that's part of testimony. In that case, I'm kind of weird. Um, but we all knew that. An officer, Steve Jones, had mentioned Eccles around the station, too, and said, um, yeah, I think he's capable of murdering children. Jeez, Steve. Um, so, let's talk about Damien Eccles. Uh, Damien Eccles, at this time, was an 18-year-old boy. He had been born Michael Wayne Hutchison, and Damien was a high school dropout who had a small criminal record. He'd previously been charged with shoplifting and burglary. Um, although he had passed his GED in 92, so, so that's a kind of asterisk on the high school dropout part. Mm -hmm. That was part of his probation uh, for the burglary charge. Now, what happened there was when Damien was 17, he had run away with his girlfriend. And during a rainstorm, they broke into an empty trailer, uh, thus the burglary charge. But had he ever committed a violent crime? Why, why would you jump to, hey, this guy could kill a kid? Or three. It well, wasn't a violent burglary. No, and... Burglary. No, and so as part of his probation for that burglary, Damien had to spend several months in a mental hospital. And he also had to... Again, take his GED test, finish high school effectively. He had had several other stints in mental institutions since then. Uh, the second time was after he threatened to hurt himself with a knife. And the third time was after he threatened his parents' lives, apparently, on his way storming out of their house. After they'd moved to Portland, uh, he was storming out of the house to move back to West Memphis. Because who doesn't want to live in West Memphis? Um, and he, like, apparently threatened to kill them. Um, one of Damien's psychologists claimed that, uh, a few weeks before these murders, Damien had told him that he got superpowers by drinking human blood. Hmm. Huh. Uh, he had had several suicide attempts between 1991 and 93. Um, he had grown up in a somewhat evangelical, um, I think his dad was a Pentecost, a Pentecostal guy. Ooh, okay. So he had grown up in like a very religious evangelical household. Uh, and then later he found Catholicism and he liked that better. Um, but more recently he'd gotten really disillusioned with uh, Catholicism. Uh, but apparently a year before the murders, Damien had told his uh, youth minister that he had a pact with the devil and that he was going to hell. Um, so Damien was an edgelord. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like that. And it sounds like most of his violent acts or threats were mostly towards himself. Yes. When did he become Damien Eccles instead of Michael Hutchinson? Uh, Damien had changed his name when he was 14 or 15, I believe. And he claimed on the stand that he had named himself after a father Damien, an 18th Sorry, a 19th century priest who had moved to the island of Molokai in Hawaii to cure lepers. And Eccles? Uh, Eccles was actually the name of his stepfather. So his mother had divorced his father and gotten remarried to a guy named Eccles. And when Damien took on uh, the name Damien, he also switched to his stepfather's name because he didn't want anything to do with his dad's name anymore, apparently. So he wasn't edgelording in the choosing of Damien as much as it would have been if he had chosen it because of the omen. 
that's correct, but I assume that's a lie. I assume he did pick it because of the omen. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Every, everything else I know about Damien Eccles says he named himself after a horror movie. Mm. And he wanted to get weird looks from people. I mean, he might have... What a weird thing to do. Oh, you, that's because your name is Carrie? Is that what you're doing? I don't know. Maybe. Oh, Scaroline. But, <laughs> but you didn't name yourself. I chose Carrie. It's like if you had... Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Is that why? <laughs> uh, that helped, yeah. I also... I have an Aunt Carol, so that would be confusing. And then nothing else really made sense for Caroline. Liney? What? Go with Liney. I'm going to start calling you Liney. Please don't. Now, Damien's best friend was a kid named Jason Baldwin. Jason was 16 and still enrolled in school. Uh, he was described by his schoolmates as very, very quiet, um, but basically being Damien's shadow. He would do anything Damien asked. Uh, Jason had also a very minor criminal record. He'd previously been arrested for vandalism. And like I said, he was still in high school and was uh, actually getting, by all accounts, pretty decent grades. He was, I guess, a really artistic kid who liked drawing and sketching. Uh, Damien says in Paradise Lost, which is the best-known documentary made about this uh, crime, that he and Jason basically lived together. He says, oh yeah, we wore each other's clothes. Uh, we were more like brothers, really. Um, he says they used to go out snake hunting. And then he says a weird thing for a teen teenager to say. Snakes and music were our whole life. Just looking for new groups, he says, like Slayer, Metallica, U2. That's not a weird thing for a teenager to say. What else is there going on? I guess the Maybe two, throwing girls or, you the, know. The two weird things to me, it's just, we used to go out snake hunting, snakes and music were our whole life. Like, your whole life? You're... I think it's more about the bro time. I don't think it's about the snakes. I think it's about spending time together. But you're not going to say friendship and music or our whole life because that's silly. To a teenage boy. And then he says they were always looking for new groups, but he just says the th like three of the most famous bands in the world. Well, those are his favorites, Sean. Slayer, Metallica, U2. This all reads teenage boy to me. We're all looking, we're always looking for new bands like Slayer and U2. <laughs> I love how U2's in there. These boys were huge Metallica fans. They both wore a lot of Metallica t-shirts. That is part of what sort of set them apart in this community, uh, weirdly. <laughs> um... Yeah, just the wearing wearing all black. Uh, it won't surprise you to know that Damien had a black trench coat that he wore the at duster, all times. The duster, yes. The what? The duster. Yes, the black. Yes, the previously mentioned black duster. Mm. Uh, he would wear that always, like every day, no matter what the weather. Hottest day of summer, Damien's out there in his stupid coat. Right again, it's like teenage boys wearing shorts in the winter. It's it's an affectation. It, Damien Eccles was all affectation. Big affectation guy. Um, and there's nothing wrong with a teenager having affectations. No, that's how they figure out what their personality is. Except that in Damien's case, it would end up getting him sentenced to death. Well, if he is not guilty, then that seems like everyone else's fault rather than his. Because it, it seems like mostly teenage stuff to me mixed with some, you know, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Now, the third member of the West Memphis Three is a Jesse Miss Kelly. Now, he was friends, friendly, at least, with Jason and Damien. It's it's a little unclear to me. It's a little opaque how close they were. He wasn't, like, it wasn't a, a Three Musketeers situation. Uh, Jesse Miss Kelly was at least 
like a secondary friend, if not like Damien tries to make it sound like he's like a tertiary, like a guy I've seen around kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think they were closer than that. Mm -hmm. And I see why he would want to distance himself from Jesse. We'll get into that. Uh, Now, Jesse Miss Kelly was 17 years old. Jesse had an IQ of 72, which is like barely functional. That's at a, well, barely like it's on the edge of normal, I guess is what I'm saying. He's he's operating at like a Forrest Gump level. Mm-hmm. And that's not joking. They say Forrest Gump's IQ in the movie. I think it's 70, right? I think they might say 74, actually. Ah. So he might have Jesse Miss Kelly beat. Yeah, so it, not on the same level as everyone else that he goes to school with. Right. Uh, or went to school with, because Jesse was also a high school dropout. Ah. Um, when he was in school, he was known to have a temper, and he had gotten in fights with other kids a lot. Now, Damien, Jason, and Jesse weren't the only suspects uh, who ever came up for this crime. The police uh, briefly considered a Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. Uh, Morgan was an ice cream truck driver for Frosty Treats with a history of minor drug offenses, who definitely knew all three of the boys, and Morgan and Holland left very suddenly for Oceanside, California, just four days after the bodies were discovered. Well, it sounds a little less tenuous than the other guys. Why Why were they suspected, aside from Damien was on parole and he wore black a lot? Did they know the kids at all, or...? Uh, they knew them by sight. They, you know, but they didn't know them, know them, no. They didn't know them, for example, as well as Chris Morgan did. Chris Morgan had sold ice cream to all three of right. the boys. Now, the Oceanside police did pick up Morgan and Holland, and uh, during the police interview, Morgan said that the drugs caused blackouts. Great. And that he, quote, might have killed them, but he quickly took it back. Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, Now, I read this police interview, and it is like, this is after they scoop this guy Morgan up off the street, give him a polygraph test immediately. Yeah, he's probably still actively high. And then they bothered him about whether he was gay for like a while because they got it out of his buddy that like, oh, yeah, Chris, Chris blew some guy in a bathroom a couple years ago. And then they bring him back in and they're like, you told us you weren't a homosexual, Mr. Morgan. Oh, so you got that going for it, which is like the homophobia. A lot of these places and a lot of these people would just equate that with pedophilia. Which this is, is California. It's this, just the time. No. I, yes. But I mean... <sighs> It's still something that people do to this day, which is completely maddening and horrific. It's like it has nothing to do with pedophilia. Um, being gay is nothing against you, but to these people, it was. Yeah. So anyway, he keeps bothering Chris Morgan about, are you gay? Are you gay? And finally, the guy said, and this is a quote from the police interview transcript. Well, maybe I freaked out and blacked out and killed the three little boys and fucked them up the ass then. Oh, I thought he was going to say maybe I blacked out and blew a guy in a bathroom or whatever. Oh, no, um, no, no. No, he t- no he admitted to blowing the guy in the bathroom. Uh, that's not that's not great, saying all that. It's not great. He then immediately said, no, no, I didn't do that. No. But then he asks for a police hypnotist, which isn't a thing. The Oceanside didn't have one on hand. Um, anyway, Oceanside sent blood and urine samples to the West Memphis police, but... This never comes up again, as far as I can tell. They were never That's wild. tested. Were they taken out of California and brought back to Arkansas? They were sent via mail. No, I mean the, the guys. 
Oh, they don't come up in the story again. They were never questioned by West Memphis police. Uh, he basically said, like, even if, obviously, it could have been a coerced confession or whatever, and he's probably on drugs at that very moment, but, like, it's less vague than Damien and Jason and Jesse so far. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just telling you. They no, didn't I'm just, I'm shaken. Again. I'm shook. Uh, there was also Mr. Bojangles, as he's come to be known uh, to the internet sleuths who have been following this case ever since. Mr. Bojangles. You see, on 842, at 842 on May 5th, the night the boys had disappeared, at a Bojangles restaurant one mile from the crime scene, this is like a fast food chicken joint, I think, employees called the police to report a, quote, mentally disoriented black male in the ladies' bathroom. This guy was apparently, quote, covered in mud and blood, uh, which he was smearing all over the restroom walls. By the time Officer Regina Meeks was on scene, the guy was already gone. And so the officer took the report through the drive through window and, ne and never even went into the restaurant. So they didn't have the blood to test or anything? Well, it's not a friggin like curly fries and a Coke. Through the drive-thru. Yeah, she did. And imagine being behind her, too. She like, took come on, paper. I want my burger. I know. She's she's doing she's doing paperwork! <laughs> the manager of the Bojangles, Marty King, called the police the day after the bodies had been found, because he was like, wait a second. This is like, I told you it was a mile from the scene, right? Mm-hmm. And so the police came when the manager called the day after the bodies were found. Of course, they had cleaned up everything up. Well, listen, this also makes me not want to eat at a Bojangles, because the police did get blood scrapings Ew! off the wall. <laughs> Ew! They were still there. Uh, they did get blood scrapings off the wall, and uh, they took uh, a pair of sunglasses that the manager gave them that he thought may, may have been the perps. Did they test the blood? It's funny, Carrie. That blood scrape, and this is a, a wild moment in Paradise Lost, um... Detective Bryn Ridge is asked that on the stand, and he says that no, the blood scrapings were not tested. And when asked why, he says, I lost them. I'm going to run out into the street. And he quickly adds, that was my mistake. Yeah, Bryn. Yeah, buddy. We know. <laughs> like, that's crazy. <sighs> but they were certain that this was a blackmail. Like, yes. it couldn't have been Damien, say. No, no, no. Okay. It, was a, it was a black guy. We don't know anything <laughs> else about him because that's, again, the last time he'll come up in this story. Well, you got me pissed already. <laughs> um, regardless, Damien was questioned more than any other suspect. Uh, it seemed like they make, made up their mind from the get-go. Uh, yeah, Gary Gitchell, the chief investigator, said he had decided this was Damien by three weeks into the investigation, and that he was, he said this part in a press conference after they arrested the boys, that he was, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 11 certain that it was Damien Eccles. Nice, Gary. Now, police interviewed Damien for the first time on May 7th, and that was just in his bedroom at his parents' trailer. Officially, uh, they called him in and talked to him two days later. And police claim that in both of these interviews, he showed knowledge of the crimes that he couldn't have had unless he had committed them. Do they say what this was? Yeah. Um, asked if one boy was hurt worse than the others. Uh, Damien said that one had been more mutilated and had had his genitals cut. Um, he was asked what kind of a person 
would have done something like this. And the officer said, he said, someone sick did this. Yeah, some kind of a thrill kill. And he said, that's not something anyone could say that. And Damien then told him that the penis was a symbol of power in his religion known as Wicca. I don't even know if that's necessarily true. Whether it's true. It's a female based religion, but. Whether it's true or not, keep a lid on it, Damien. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the penis and the information. <laughs> um, but wait. So the, again, genital mutilation, that's not something that was public knowledge. Because this, this would have to be something that no one except for maybe the families knew about. Yes, exactly. Uh, and the police say that that is in that category. Certainly that only one of the boys had had that done. Right. But, I mean, if it was in the paper or something, then obviously it doesn't hold water. Right. Then, uh, oh, he knows. Damien said later that he had read everything he said in the paper or seen it on television. Uh-huh. And this was, two, this was the day after the body was found? And... Uh, I don't know. I have separately read witness testimony that there was, like, due to police leaks, there was information going around, like, just rumor mill stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this apparent foreknowledge of the case would be a pretty central part. Well, I have to admit, that specific thing, not the thrill kill thing, because anyone could say anything about any case, but um, that specific knowledge is weird. Damien also told the detective that the number three had magical power. Yeah, I could tell you that. And he claimed to ask how he knew this. Damien claimed to have been a member of a white witch circle for the last five months. Well, three also has magical power in Catholicism. That's true, the Trinity. So, I mean, okay. Six, six, six. Like, what? He told the officer that all people have a demonic force inside them. Perhaps some can't control that force. He's just a goth. Yeah, he's being he's being a real edgelord, and it's just not the time, Damien. But he doesn't seem like he's the most socially apt. Yeah, exactly. So he probably, he probably thinks he's being real cool. And asked, how do you think the person feels who did this? He, he didn't say, like, well, I don't know. How would I know? He said, um... Probably makes him feel good. Gives him power. I mean, anyone could assume that, too. Yep. In, in, in a weird twist, the officer also asked what type of books Jam- Damien enjoyed reading. And he cited the names of Anton LaVey and <laughs> Clive Stephen- Cussler <laughs> and Stephen King. Oh, shocking. I'm shocked. So, Carrie, halfway there. <laughs> little, little Caroline. Honestly, you ask me any of this stuff when I'm a kid, I probably come off sounding like a serial killer, too. It's around this time in Paradise Lost that we get a close-up shot of Damien Eccles in prison smoking a cigarette. Just, you know, being a goth, being Damien. And he says, uh, people were getting real upset seeing the cops were incompetent, couldn't do their jobs, so they had to do something fast. And we were the real obvious choice, because we stood out from everybody else. Super cool drag on cigarette. <laughs> Listen, he might not be wrong, but you, know, you don't have to be like that about it, Damien. And we will see the West Memphis police make their move when we come back. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. 
But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Lots of things are a struggle right now. School, work, even something as simple as going to the grocery store, it could feel overwhelming. But one thing that shouldn't be overwhelming is accessing mental and emotional care. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp is the leader in online counseling with over 4,000 licensed counselors on the site and over 500,000 people who have gotten counseling to date. The mission of BetterHelp is to make professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. I've been using BetterHelp for the better part of this year, and honestly, I don't know how I would have gotten through 2020 without it. And, of course, Sean and Poe. When I need to talk to my counselor, I can just text her and I can schedule chats, phone calls, or video calls for longer sessions. This means I have flexibility to set a session during the week, or during busy weeks, I can just shoot her a message here and there when I have time. Take control of your mental and emotional well-being. BetterHelp is a great place to start. For 10% off your first month's subscription of BetterHelp, go to our podcast link at www.betterhelp.com slash scary and see how good it can feel to push past the struggle and find hope in a new day. That's www.betterhelp.com slash A-I-N-T-I-T-S-C-A-R-Y for 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. Get professional counseling anytime, anywhere, because you deserve to be happy. Welcome back to what's shaping up to be a supersized episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. When last we left you, the police had narrowed it down to one main suspect in this West Memphis murder murder case very, very quickly. And that one suspect was Damien Eccles. All that was left to do now, in their minds, was figure out how to get him. Yeah, that's a great way to do things. You you start from the suspect. You start from who did it and work your way backwards. Now, the first attempt to do this would come through Vicki Hutchison. Oddly, no relation to Damien's parents. Vicki was a, a mom from nearby Marion who had taken a polygraph about shoplifting on May 6th. Uh, well, she was you know, in the police station, her toddler was such a distraction they couldn't even do the test. And the toddler was babbling about the murder. And the officer said, what, you know something about them murders over in West Memphis? <laughs> to the toddler? Mm-hmm. And the kid said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said the, the kids with these were, he was actually, it turned out, a schoolmate of the three murdered boys. And he said the kids had been killed at the playhouse. And so the police started asking for more details. Um, ended up, there's no playhouse near where the boys were killed, and, um, this kid couldn't identify any of the West Memphis Three in a lineup, so the police didn't care anymore. Um, he also claimed the murders were done by Satanists who spoke Spanish. Oh. <laughs> that doesn't seem like Sangre. a- That doesn't seem super, um, relevant, admissible, or true, <laughs> coming from this uh, very small child. Um, but the police now had Vicki Hutchison's number. And by June 1st, they had convinced her to secretly mic up her trailer and get a conversation with Damien Eccles recorded. So she knew him. 
wasn't um, related to him, but knew him. She told police she didn't know him, but she knew Jesse Miss Kelly, and she could get him to introduce her to Damien. Okay. That's why I don't buy when Damien says, like, he and Jesse weren't close, like, barely knew Jesse. It's right. Like, well, Jesse was able to just introduce this woman to you on a on the fly. On a and way. that's how Jesse gets involved initially. Jesse was kind of, the police thought of him as an associate of Damien and Jason. That's how Jesse got involved. Um, but he does pop up here as he introduces this Vicky Hutchison to Damien. And Vicky invites Damien over to her trailer where she's placed all these police microphones. Uh, and she talked him up and tried to get um, basically a confession out of him. She said, you know, well, why do you seem nervous, Damien? And he was like, well, you know, everyone thinks I killed those kids. And Vicky was like, did you? <laughs> Tell this person that you've only just met. Yeah. And so he was like, no, of course not. I could never do anything like that. Um, police claim that the audio from this interview was completely inaudible. Um, Vicky says it was audible. I don't know why, <laughs> why she cares or why that matters. Then on June 2nd, Vicky Hutchison was still talking to the police, having failed to get anything for them on June 1st. Um, and she told police, well, you know what? I attended a Wicca meeting with Damien Eccles and Jesse Miss Kelly. Yeah, yeah. It was about two oh, weeks. Wicca meeting. It was about two weeks after the murders, she said. And she said, at this meeting, a drunk Damien Eccles, you know how these Wiccans are at their worship services. They all get really drunk. Uh, this dr the drunk Damien was openly bragging about murdering the three boys to all of his Wiccan buddies. That's actually, like, Wicca is not Satanism. And that would be pretty bad form considering... The belief that in like the threefold law that everything you do comes back to you three times. So it's not good to do bad things. The real Satanists say that you shouldn't hurt other people. Well, and that's sure. The limit. But it's like it's not even related. Uh, no, but it's they don't believe in the devil. I don't think. But it's pagan. It's not Christian. So that's about as far as you have to think it through if you're West Memphis PD, right? Yes, they should have thought it through. Hutchison failed to name any other attendees of the meeting and couldn't remember where it was, except it was an open field somewhere that Damien had driven her to in his red Ford Fiesta. Classic three-person coven. Before you ask, Damien did not own a red Ford Fiesta, nor did he have a driver's license. Nice. Um, now, Vicky later recanted this whole testimony, way later, like in the 2000s. Uh, and said she had just cooperated with the police to avoid shoplifting charges and in hopes of getting a cash reward. I don't think she ever got the cash reward, but... Vicky she, sucks. She was also never charged with theft, so uh, I guess she got something out of it? Vicky sucks. Uh, to your point, though, is that where Jesse Miss Kelly gets involved? He was questioned for the first time the following day. Now, remember, Jesse has an IQ of 72... His parents gave permission for him to go to the police station, uh, but they didn't go with him. And there wasn't a lawyer or a parent present while Jesse was questioned um, by Detective Mike Allen and uh, lead investigator, is it Gary Gitchell? Gary Gitchell, for 12 hours. Where were the parents? Why would they allow this? They were back home. Uh, listen, I think... Springer was on, like... Go at least one of you go with your kid. All right, go ahead, Jesse. Whatever makes me mad. Well, you just be a good boy. You come home, son. Go, go, go ahead, Jesse. So, 12 hours of conversation, of which two segments were taped, totaling 46 minutes. 
don't think I have to comment on why that's questionable. Now, at first, uh, at the beginning, Jesse told police he had been wrestling that night in Dias, Arkansas. Uh, over time, he later said that he got tired as they asked him the same questions over and over and over again. And Jesse, again operating on an IQ of 72, eventually just started agreeing to everything they said. Uh, before the recorder was on, Jesse had apparently already told the cops he had attended some satanic meetings that were attended by boys and girls with uh, orgies and dogs and other animals being killed and sometimes eaten. He went on to confess on tape to helping Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin murder the three boys as part of a satanic ritual. In the tape, Jesse says that Jason called him very early in the morning. He says that they had gone and met at the creek and they were already there when the boys arrived on their bike. Baldwin and Eccles had called the boys over and begun beating on them with uh, uh, sticks, big sticks. He says they severely beat the boys and raped Branch and Byers and forced them to perform oral sex on them. This is Damien and Jason. Jesse, no part in it, just watching. Uh, then he says Michael Moore tried to run away at one point, but Jesse caught him and held him till the other two could get over there and continue uh, beating on him. Wouldn't it be surprising with all of this sexual activity that no DNA of anyone else was found? Yes. That's yeah. That's why later it's it, it, the idea that the boys were raped was not only called into question but basically thrown out. That and oral sex. I mean, you would think between that, even like skin samples or something like that. Saliva. Yeah. Yeah. No DNA. Hmm. Interesting. He also said in this confession that he had been in a cult for about three months now. And that he had seen Damien show pictures of the boys at one of the meetings before the murder, implying that he had uh, been watching them. And we, I'll just use what the police were looking for here. He had premeditated the crime. And he couldn't name anyone else at these meetings. Nope. Cool. He just cool. said there was boys and girls. Oh, there was boys and there was girls. Cool. It really does remind you of um, the kid Brendan from... Um, Making a murderer? Yeah, that's exactly... It's the same situation. And we all know how that one worked out for everybody. Mm, great and happy? Great and happy for the prosecutor. <laughs> Shortly after Jesse's confession, the boys were arrested and their homes were searched. Uh, 83 items of clothing were seized from the three trailers, along with other sundries, uh, like a throw rug, a toilet seat cover from Jason's house, a blanket from a grandma's bedroom, um, some of their parents' clothing, some of their siblings' clothing, all this for fiber evidence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say this about Jesse's confession. The one thing I'll say in its favor is that it is repeated. Eight months later, on February 17th of 94, Miss Kelly made another statement with his lawyer sitting next to him going, stop it. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. And he just went on and rattled off once again how the boys had been abused and murdered. Hmm. But he's, again, not playing with a full deck, so it's hard to really get into the head of anything that Jesse Miss Kelly does or says. That's right. not me. No, I'm, I know. I'm and not I... ripping on him. And I'm sure he has something to say about that later, right? Yes, he does. Meanwhile, the parents of the murdered boys instantly had zero doubt about the suspects. Byer's mother, Melissa, was asked by reporters if she thought the boys had been worshipping Satan. And she said, just look at the three of them. They look like punks. 
meanwhile, Byers' stepfather, the very, always memorable John Mark Byers, is seen in Paradise Lost walking through the creek bed where the boys were found in overalls holding a beer, ranting and raving and quoting from the Bible, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. He looks into the camera and we can assume talking to Damien at this point, I hope y'all are happy with your master, Satan, Mr. Slipfoot, because he's not going to help you. He's going to torture you. Wow. They had their satanic rituals out here. They had all kinds of homosexual orgies, I've been told. Crazy things. And then he threatens to spit on their graves and uh, uh, also piss on their graves. Uh, and he's, there's a lot of talk about devils and angels. And you can guess. A lot guess. more body fluids found uh, from his threats than at the crime scene. Yeah, Mark Byers is an interesting fella. He appears in every piece of media about this case. Uh, he might even show up in that Reese Witherspoon movie. I don't know. Um, he, by the way, passed in 2020 or in June of last year in a car accident. So uh, R.I.P. to John Mark Byers. And I, 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 he lived a very sad life, but he's a he's an entertaining presence on camera and he's always there. Uh, at one point in Paradise Lost, he's out there shooting his gun. He's got a black powder pistol. And he's out there with Michael Moore's dad, just shooting pistols at pumpkins and water bottles. And he's talking to the camera about how, like, you know, this black powder, what's great about it is it's untraceable. So uh, if you wanted to take somebody out, they could never find out who fired that gun, what gun it came from. But hopefully the courts will pull through. And then just in case that was too subtle, he takes aim at a water bottle and a pumpkin and uh, calls them the boys' names and shoots them. Take that, Damien! Bang! You son of a bitch! Wow. He's Like I said, he's with Todd Moore, Michael's dad. Todd asks how far the range is in the courtroom, and then takes a few plugs with the gun himself, punctuated by Mark going, Yeah! I like that! Hit him again! Wow. There's a lot of anger on the part of the parents, which you can understand. Mm-hmm. Aside from Jesse's confession, was there anything else that attach them to the crime scene like especially jason well before we can talk about jason and damien's trials we have to talk about jesse's because it was uh, a separate trial and the reason for this is because jesse's confession obviously named both damien and jason and therefore if uh therefore it was inadmissible in their trial you can't have co-defendants whose confessions incriminate each other mm-hmm uh, which is nice. That's that's one place where the law worked for these boys. So Jesse had a separate trial, which, uh, of course, was mostly about whether his confession had been coerced or whether it was true. The defense brought up, um, well, like, first of all, early in the tapes, and this is after the conversation's been happening for however many hours, uh, Jesse is heard on the tapes saying that the murder happened at noon, initially, when it had to have happened in the evening, which is a pretty big mess up right uh he had also said that damien uh had raped the well he actually he says and then he started screwing them and stuff um which was something police believed at the time but later expert witnesses would come out for the defense and say there's no evidence of sexual assault on these bodies mm -hmm. so there's just very questionable things in the account that jesse lays out uh, the defense called a few witnesses on false confession 
Um, Warren D. Holmes is an expert on police interrogation, who they called, and uh, he said, uh, What I didn't like is most of it emanated from questions right off the bat, without any narrative of any length at all, without any discussion of feelings or conversations or anything. And pointing out more inconsistencies in the story, he said, Now he certainly knows the difference between a shoelaces and a rope. That should have been the signal that something was radically wrong. Because Jesse had said that he had seen uh, Jason and Damien tying the boys up with rope that they had brought. Mm-hmm. In reality, the boys were tied up with their own shoelaces. Right. A defense expert on false confessions named Richard J. Offshay um, pointed out that the police had circled back to revisit the time of the murder no less than eight times on the tape. <laughs> where Jesse goes, so it was morning. And they go, no, not when they called you, when you were actually there. And Jesse goes, noon. And they go, okay, was school already out? And he goes, yes. Nice. You're not leading him at all. Good job. And then later, just a few minutes later, the the police are going, okay, so the night you were in the woods, had you been playing around in the water? And then since Jesse just repeats whatever is said to him, he goes, yeah, we'd been in the water. We was in it that night, playing around in it. (laughs) And that's the first time, like he says, night on the tape. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was there was just obvious problems with the um, with the confession, as well as a bunch of alibi witnesses who said they had seen Jesse at a wrestling match that night uh, and that they were sure of it because Jesse had hurt his arm that night. And um, also there were a few, you know, a few buddies had gone who had never gone before and hadn't gone since. So it was like, I know it was that night. I know Jesse was there. Uh, and there were like, I don't know, four or five kids who uh, testified to that effect. Mm hmm. Nevertheless, Jesse was convicted after a very short jury deliberation and assigned life plus 40 years. He was 17 years old. Now, the lawyers for the victim's families were urging them, had to really get them, you know, fight them on this. But the lawyers convinced the families to offer Jesse taking his life sentence off the table. He'd still have to go to prison, but not life, possibility of parole back on the table if he would testify against Jason and Damien. Mm-hmm. Because at this point, if Jesse didn't testify, his confession wasn't admissible in court for the other trial. Right. And Jesse, I don't know what this tells you about Jesse, about the case, about their guilt. Um, I don't Interpret it how you will. Um, Jesse was by all accounts, offered a deal that at least put parole back on the table and did not testify. He said no. Hmm. Which meant that no mention of Jesse confessing to the crimes could could or mentioning Damien and Jason's name would be allowed in this trial. Well, I have a feeling they managed to fuck it up anyway. So you asked what they had against Jason and Damien. Yeah. Well, without Jesse's testimony... The physical evidence was as follows. First of all, and maybe most convincingly, uh, was the fiber evidence. Remember those 83 pieces of clothing that had been seized from the boys' houses? Mm -hmm. Um, There were also, by the way, six items from the two victims, from two of the victims' houses taken as control things. I'll explain fiber evidence in a second. Um, You see, red red cotton fibers that were pulled from the victims' clothes, the ones that had been found in the creek were similar to a pullover from Damien Eccles' house that I think belonged to his mom or to his brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also to a red shirt that was taken from Michael Moore's house as a control. <laughs> okay. So 
you see where we run into problems with the, <laughs> the fiber evidence. Uh, but that's why you take controls, right? Right. So then... Green fibers uh, were found on a Cub Scout hat and also some blue pants at the scene. And those were found to be microscopically similar to a Garanimal shirt that Damien's brother had. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, there was some red rayon fiber that was most discussed that was found on the victim's clothes. Um, it was found on a checkered shirt of one of the boys and was similar to Jason Baldwin's mother's house coat, like her bathrobe. Okay. Um, now, two witnesses, that was the most discussed because it was a little controversial. Two witnesses for the prosecution say it was said it was similar. A witness for the defense came to say it wasn't similar. All right. So to make what you will of that. Uh, sure. Although on a related note, the victim, the witness for the defense was apparently on leave from a mental hospital at the time. Ah. So I don't know. <laughs> um, all of the fibers I just mentioned were assumed by the prosecution to have gotten there through secondary transfer, right? So Jason wasn't wearing his mother's house coat. Right, but he was there. He would have, yes, he would have gotten the fiber picked up at home. Now, here's the problem with the fiber evidence is that it's not DNA, right? It's obviously not as exact as that. And also only six items were taken as controls from the victim's houses. And one of them hit a match. Alone. <laughs> like, yeah. So of those six items, yeah, one of them already. Yeah, what if like Jason's mom and one of the kids mom has the same house coat or something? Yeah. It seems like a town that's probably shopping at the same like Walmart or whatever. And this isn't really... I was looking into fiber evidence a lot. It seems like... I've read a, I read a couple, like, AMAs with uh, fiber evidence uh, forensic scientists and stuff. It seems like it's better for, like... Well, A, obviously, the more unique a fabric, the more useful it is. Uh, but it also... It, it's really useful for establishing, like, where a crime happened, maybe. If there's fibers from a rug in something. Or... Or something like that. <laughs> um, okay. Was there anything aside from the fiber evidence? Yeah. Um, there were some witnesses. There was a Narlene Hollingsworth and family. She and her son, Anthony, claimed they were driving to a friend's house now with a car of seven people, apparently, just a loaded up minivan or something. Uh, and Narlene and her son said they had seen Damien and his girlfriend, Domini, walking near the truck wash around 930. PM. Yes. On the night of the murders. Uh, they said Damien was wearing a dark colored shirt and that it was dirty. Uh, but other people in the car, including Narlene's husband, said it was too far away to tell who they were. Okay. Uh, also, some teenage girls said that Damien was at a softball game uh, and they overheard him say that he had killed those three kids, quote, and I'm going to kill two more. I already have one picked out. So that really cuts out the, the idea of three being a powerful number and that's why he killed three kids. Well, five is also, I'm sure, <laughs> a powerful number. I don't know anything about five. One of those girls um, also said in court that they weren't that close to Damien when he, when he said it. And she didn't know what Damien had said just before or just after that. Mm. And also she th and she was asked if she thought Damien looked weird. And she said yes, because he's dressed all in black and his hair is jet black and his hair is long. Cool. So that's that. Um there was a knife. This is the other sort of big centerpiece of the prosecution's case. Um, there was a knife that had been found in a lake behind Jason's house five months after the murders uh, by police divers. Police contended that it was used in the murders. 
did it match the cuts to the bodies? Uh, they did have the medical examiner testify that the cuts on the bodies looked like they had been done by a serrated knife, and one of the edges on this blade was serrated. It's still super tenuous. Yeah, but Damien's ex-girlfriend... I could probably find a knife in a lake right now. I know, but Carrie, Deanna Holcomb, Damien's ex-girlfriend... Oh yeah, exes are never vengeful. And she said that Damien used to have a knife that looked like that, except, quote, it had a compass on the handle, end quote. So he would know where to stab, (laughs) like... But but also, like, it's not even the same knife. Why is it mentioned? Who cares? Um, meanwhile, Jason's mother contends that she threw that knife into the lake, uh, a year before the murders happened because she didn't want it around the house. All right. Finally, for physical evidence, the night of Damien's arrest, he was wearing a necklace that police, uh, noticed had some minute traces of blood on it. And one of those drops matched Damien's blood type and one matched Stephen Branch's blood type. Although it also matched Jason Baldwin's blood type and also matched 11% of people because that's how blood types work. So they didn't, this might have been a little early to like DNA test it. They couldn't. It was too small an amount. Too ma- yeah. Uh, it's all circumstantial. All of it. Well, hold on because there's one more witness. The star witness for the, for the prosecution was jailhouse rat Michael Carson. I love a jailhouse rat. Carson had stayed with Jason in juvie for a little while, and he said that Jason made incriminating statements. You see, Carson said he asked Jason, so did you kill them kids? So juvie after the murders. Yes. But before the arrest. No, this is after Jason was arrested for the murders. Oh, and he was st- he was in juvie and not prison. He was 16. Okay. And not convicted of a, a crime yet. Right. Okay. So the... Jail, whatever. So the first time this uh, Michael Carson asked, Jason denied any involvement in the murders. But Michael said the second time he asked, he said, all right, just between you and me, Jason, come on, I won't tell anyone. (laughs) And Jason went into detail, said Michael, about how he dismembered the... This is... Dismembered? I'm going to quote Michael at this point. He went into detail about how he dismembered the kid or... uh, well, I don't know how many kids, but he, he just said he dismembered him, uh, sucked the blood from the penis and scrotum and put the balls in his mouth. Uh, uh, beautifully. <laughs> I, have no, I have nothing to say to that. The prosecutor goes, now, were you offered anything like a reward or anything of that nature? And Michael Carsey goes, no, sir. And I, if I was, I would deny it. <laughs> okay. Now... Michael Carson is introduced, sorry, interviewed in West of Memphis, Peter Jackson's documentary from 2012, in which he says he has a history of drug-induced hallucinations. And specifically around this time, quote, LSD, inhalants, I was huffing glue all the time. Cool. Seems like there's a lot of that stuff going around. Yeah. Very, very reliable witnesses. So that's it. The boys' trial began Tuesday, February 4th, 1994. Um, As Damien and Jason were walked into court, reporters yelled, Damien! Damien, are you in a cult, Damien? (laughs) Another star witness for the prosecution was an expert witness, Dale W. Griffiths, who was brought in as an expert on the occult. No, Uh, No one named Dale is an expert on the occult. Oh, look up a picture of him on your phone. I'm imagining, like, Vernon Dursley. Dale was asked 
how he identified occult practitioners. And in a shot where in the documentary, he appears to be just what a nerd, what a nerd. And he, he, yes, he's, he looks like if spoiled milk had a face. Yeah. And it's upset about being milk. He, he's very grumpy about being milk. He was asked how he identifies occult practitioners. And he goes looking like straight at Damien. He goes, black fingernails, hair painted black, black t-shirts. Sometimes they will tattoo themselves. Tattoo? Tattoo. Oh, honey. He goes, uh, they asked him if there was anything significant about the date. And he's like, well, May 1st is uh, Beltane. The day before that is Wampersnot. And uh, May 5th is Cinco de Mayo. So Then you go into the fact that some groups, occult groups, will use a full moon. In some books, they talk about the life force of the blood. In a lot of cases, the younger the individual, the more power they have. A lot of times they'll store it for later uses. Also, they will uh, consume it or bathe in it. Dale. Um, Dale was asked to testify on Damien's journal, which, of course, you've, you've come to know Damien Eccles a little bit over the last hour. Damien's diary on the uh, first page had a pentagram inscribed with like seven, sorry, six uh, upside down crosses around sure. the pentagram. Uh, and as Dale was looking at that, he goes, that's confusion to me. This is a white magic symbol, a Wicca pentagram uh, with these uh, upside down crosses, which is from a totally different school of occultism. <laughs> so they're both arguing that Wicca is evil because they went to a Wicca meeting and talked about murder. The but also Wicca. Yeah. Not Griffiths. No, I, but Griffiths is saying that it's white magic. So the prosecution doesn't give a shit. No, of course not. Cool. Now, Love that. Damien's lawyer gets up and provides an absolutely brutal cross-examination on Dale Griffiths, who is a graduate of Columbia Pacific University. And the lawyer's literally like, this is a mail-order college. It's Is it like community where it's Columbia University? It is C-O-L-U-M-B-A. Ah, B-I-A. too bad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but Columbia Pacific University. Um and the, the lawyer's literally going, what classes did you take to attend to attain this master's degree? And he goes, he sadly, Griffiths goes, none. And he goes, what classes did you take to attain that PhD? And he sadly goes, none. He just paid for it? Yeah. Wow. Both of his degrees. Cool. As for the defense, they put Damien on the stand. No. He insisted. But still, your lawyer can just say like, no. Yeah, exactly. Bad idea. Stop. Um, yeah, so on the stand, that's when he made the claim that he had changed his name after Father Damien. The prosecution was asking during their cross because they assumed it would be for the omen, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I love the, his lawyer. His defense lawyer is trying to help him, asks, the, asks to clarify for the crowd, for the jury specifically. Damien, is Wicca the same thing as witchcraft? Easy tee-up question. Carrie, answer that for me if you're Damien Eccles. No. All right. What Damien said was, uh, Wicca's also called witchcraft. The word Wicca was actually bastardized. It, mo- it once meant wise one. <laughs> Dude. I mean, you're, it's not the same thing. Like, witchcraft, Wicca is witchcraft, but witchcraft isn't Wicca. The word Wicca was bastardized. It once meant wise one. 
I hate teenage boys. In the cross-examination, the prosecutor started in about Alistair Crowley. He asked if Damien had read Crowley, and Damien said, well, I would have read him, but he just wasn't around. The prosecutor pushes forward. Well, Alistair Crowley's a guy who, based on his writings, believes in human sacrifice, doesn't he? And Damien goes, well, he also believed he was God, though, so... To no laughs from the gallery. <laughs> he has a point. Um, and then he continues, uh, the prosecutor does. He also had writings that children were the best human sacrifice, yes? And Damien says, yes, sir. But he says that he'd never read any Aleister Crowley, and then the prosecutor produces a document, like a paper that Damien's been scribbling on in prison. Mm-hmm. He's been playing with coded languages, like he's trying different coded alphabets and stuff. Because he's a nerd and a goth. Uh, And he was practicing using different names. And the names he had written in all these different alphabets were his name, his best friend Jason Baldwin's name. That's kind of cute. His brand new son's name. Damien's son had just been born. His girlfriend, Domini, was uh, pregnant when he was arrested. And Aleister Crowley's name. Playing the hits. Looks terrible, though, when you go like, no, I've never read him. It's one of the four names you've been writing here, Damien. But again, I believe it. He's he's an edgelord. He's an edgelord teenage boy. Sure. Why not? He thinks Aleister Crowley. He's heard that Black Sabbath song. Exactly. Mr. Crowley. That's all you need to know. Is that Ozzy, actually? I don't know. During the trial, uh, by the way, Damien did get to hold his son for the first time in the courthouse uh, after court broke for the day uh, in front of the news cameras. He said it made him feel good because he had given life to another human being. Mm-hmm. Damien's second day of testimony sucked even worse than his first one. You can see him arguing with his lawyers after in the documentary and the prosecutor, the, uh, the lawyer's gone. The prosecutor said you're changing your story to fit whatever comes up. And you just said, yeah. <laughs> and Damien proceeds to say, oh, I was just daydreaming. I was just kind of half listening. Cool. Cool, great. And the lawyer goes, oh, great. Maybe they'll only halfway kill you. (laughs) Now, as to the supposed information he had about the murders, Damien was asked about that by the prosecutor. Of course, they wanted to bring that up on the stand. Damien says the officer posed the question, do you think one of them could have been cut up more than the others? Another leading question. A leading question, to which Damien said, yeah, I heard one of them had been castrated. Mm -hmm. So that's a slight distinction. Um, and the prosecutor says, and, and you're saying that he's the one lying, the officer, not you. And Damien's like, I wouldn't put it past him. So everybody's just acting in character. Yeah, pretty much. During the closing statements, uh, Fogelman, the assistant DA who was trying the case, this is Paul, John Fogelman, said that there was nothing wrong with wearing black in and of itself. (laughs) There was nothing wrong with listening to heavy metal in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with reading occult books, in and of itself. But together, he said, they painted a disturbing picture. Of a teenage goth. He said, it is disturbing, Carrie. He said, these murders were clearly occult in nature, and that religion is a force that drives people to kill throughout the ages. He's so close to the point. At this point. (laughs) And yet he goes right past it. And once again, he's fully in character. And then in the dock, at least, we cut to Damien saying, I like Metallica and hard music like that because it gives me an adrenaline rush. Makes me feel alive. And then he takes a long, super cool drag on his cigarette. So everybody's acting in character. Mm -hmm. 
one more piece of evidence in this case. And it's really weird. Well, sorry, one more piece of evidence in this trial, because there's plenty more evidence to come in the case. There was a hunting knife that belonged to John Mark Byers, the stepfather of Christopher Byers, the guy who shoots the pumpkins. He gave the filmmakers from HBO, the guys who made Paradise Lost, he gave them his used hunting knife as a Christmas gift during the filming of the documentary. Thanks? Number one, that's weird. (laughs) Why did he give them a Christmas gift? Who gives a used folding knife as a Christmas gift? Period. Other questions? (laughs) Um, The filmmakers claimed, the film claims that the knife appeared to have blood on it. And so they turned it right over to West Memphis police. And it ended up coming up in the trial. Because the blood type of the blood on the knife, once again, small amount, couldn't test it for DNA, only for blood type. Uh, But the blood type matched John Mark Byers and also his son, Christopher Byers. Uh, And Byers had said in pretrial statements the knife had never been used. And then later he was like, well, yeah, I used it once. I was cutting venison with it or something. And then, oh, if there's blood on it, I must have cut myself with it, uh, folding it one time or something like that. Mm -hmm. I think... And I have a lot of thoughts on this that I'll get to in a a little bit. But I I think the documentary leans a little hard on this stuff with the knife. I think John Mark Byers is a weird, a weird guy. (laughs) But I I don't. I don't know. The knife isn't isn't super compelling to me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. At the end of the trial, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were both found guilty of three counts of capital murder. Jason was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Damien was sentenced to death by lethal injection. You know, no matter what you think of these guys, or even if you think that they're guilty, um, it should be frightening to everyone that some such little evidence led to a death penalty. Uh, it's kind of wild, yeah. Kinda. Well, and the stories continued from there. I mean, it's continued to be told in, again, three more documentaries. Um, Damien and Jesse and Jason all continued to appeal their sentences, of course. uh, But Damien probably the most outspoken and also the one who has gotten the most media attention over the years because he likes attention. He's also the most goth and the focus of the case. Yeah, he's the one who was supposedly the ringleader of the crime. He's the one who was sentenced to death. His book is called Life After Death, by the way. Cute. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Paradise Lost 2, we see Damien appealing his death sentence. We see John Mark Byers waiting outside the courthouse to yell, You won't be the boogeyman! Oh, by the way, uh, Damien... Damien was a jerk and a teenager throughout the trial. So you see him... Um, flipping the bird to the HBO camera uh, with a smile, on, like a goofy smile on his face. You see him sticking his tongue out at the parents of the murdered children. Mm. Uh, you see a lot of him just kind of goofing around. Well, again, that thing about like, I guess I was just half listening. And just being a teenager. But when you're on trial for the murder of three children, it's like... You still have that teenage invincibility, though. Yes, but it's not its not good looks, right? No, absolutely not. And at one point, Damien saying a bunch of edgelordy things, at one point he said... I guess the silver lining is I'll be like the boogeyman of West Memphis. Like parents will tell their kids about me. Mm. And, so, and you'll be dead. And so at his, 
his appeal in 2001, John Mark Byers was waiting outside the courthouse to yell at Damien, You won't be the boogeyman in West Memphis because you're going to be dead in hell. I mean, I guess. John Mark Byers, by the time the second documentary was made, uh, his life had taken a real uh, downturn. He lives, uh, quote, somewhere in Arkansas. That's good enough at this point. Sorry. We see him burying the West Memphis Three in effigy at the crime scene and then lighting the, quote, graves on fire with lighter fluid, yelling, burn, you son of a bitch! Go to hell! In between the first and second Paradise Lost's, Byers and Melissa, his wife, had been charged with burglarizing $20,000 in goods from a neighbor's home. Later, unrelated, another neighbor had taken out a restraining order against Mark when he had hit their son with a fly swatter. Okay. Uh, he said it was with the back end of a fly swatter. Uh, the parents said the son had bruising and it made them afraid. Uh, later, also unrelated to that, Mark had let... This is a weird story. But Mark had at one point let one teenage boy beat another teenage boy with his, Mark's, closed pocket knife, uh, allegedly while using a gun from his car to keep other bystanders away from the fight who wanted to interfere and break it up. They're just working it out! That kind of thing. <laughs> Later, unrelated to that, Melissa Byers died in her home and the cause of death was listed as undetermined. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, it seems like she died of an overdose of prescription drugs as well as, quote, a foreign drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, it seems to me like she became very addicted to sleeping pills and uh, eventually overdosed on them either on purpose or by accident. Uh, that's what it seems like to me. Uh, there's also new evidence that was being talked about quite a bit around 2001 when this doc came out, and that was teeth marks that were supposedly on the boys' uh, heads, torsos, uh, like like full mouth impression-looking kind of arced bite marks. This That is what helped get Ted Bundy convicted. Why didn't they... What do you mean new evidence? Well, it had been considered by the original M.E., but had never uh, made it into the autopsy report because what? they just figured, oh, no, maybe these aren't teeth. What is it? Ringworm? What? Uh, what? Listen, this medical examiner was also excoriated by the defense attorneys in the first trial. And he was uh, he was he apparently failed his like medical examiner exam like several times before he finally got it right. Nice. This is the guy who saw the, the loose butts and said, oh, they, they were raped. Don't say loose butts. That's what happens when you die. <sighs> My point is, there appeared to be teeth marks on the body, and they were only getting media attention now, and dental impressions from all three of the West Memphis Three didn't match. There it is. In that movie, there's a lot of pressure, because these movies are not... This is what. Here's the thing. Watch Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost 2 and Paradise Lost 3 and the Peter Jackson one are pretty, pretty bent on getting to one particular point and it's not even these kids are innocent it's this guy's guilty mm. and so paradise lost 2 is mainly about saying john mark byers probably murdered his son and these other two boys and so much is made of the fact that damien jason and jesse's teeth don't match these bite marks and john mark byers can't give teeth impressions because he's gotten a full set of dentures in between the crime and 2001 
Oh. It was like 1997. He got all of his teeth replaced. Either because he got in a fight or they just rotted out of his head. It's unclear which. Okay. And trust me, HBO also goes like, it's not clear which. They they <laughs> say that several times, so his story looks shaky, you know? <laughs> like he yanked them all out on purpose? Yes. Uh, Damien, at one, Damien gets a lot of chances in this movie to just look into the camera and say, like, I think John Mark Byers killed his kids. Um, Damien says he, Byers is, quote, probably the fakest creature ever to walk on two legs. I don't think there's a true thing about him. Which is shocking, because to me, John Mark Byers is nothing if not the most genuine man in the entire world. Well, I think unless he's a, you think he's the actual murderer. Uh, yeah, but I think he's, I think he's just a grief-stricken wackadoo, truly. At one point in Paradise Lost 2, he's talking to Camera about how he's found solace in songwriting. And he goes to a local studio and has them make tracks for him. And he goes, yeah, for, you know, for $45, you can have anything made. And then he goes, actually, hold on. And he pops in a cassette tape of himself singing a song that he wrote. And he sings along with it. Uh, and the song sounds to me like it's like the words of Amazing Grace set to exactly the tune of Danny Boy. <laughs> um, but this is, he's, my point is, he's not a man who's hiding anything. About himself. Sure, but don't forget, John Wayne Gacy was a painter. Yeah, that's that, that's fair. I'm not saying because of the singing. <laughs> um, Damien got married, by the way. Uh, in 1999, he married a Lori Davis, who had become one of his main, like, advocates, getting him out. And they'd started writing letters back and forth. Um, so they got married in jail. Buddhist ceremony. Well, they said it was a Buddhist ceremony, but they just made it up. They, there was, they burned some incense. They wrote the whole ceremony themselves. They said they added a bunch more hugging and kissing just because Damien hadn't like touched a person from outside of prison in years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sweet. In 2008, there was another appeal. So the first appeal didn't work. No, the first appeal did not work. The bite mark evidence was not found to be compelling. Uh, there were other appeals in between here. I, yeah. I'm just mentioning the ones that are in the movies. Significant. Yeah. In 2008, uh, there was another appeal because D uh, DNA technology had come a long way. And now the West Memphis Three wanted the opportunity to use new DNA techniques to test a couple of hairs that had been found at the crime scene that nothing could be done with back then. Mm -hmm. The appeal was also based on jury misconduct allegations. You see, apparently a jury foreman, the jury foreman in Jesse and Jason's trial was a guy named Kent Arnold. And according to court documents anyway, he supposedly like openly discussed Jesse's confession in the jury room and had you said... You mean a, Damien and Jason's trial? What did I say? Jesse and Jason's mm -hmm. trial? Yes, Damien and Jason's trial. He was talking about Jesse's confession in the jury room. Oh, boy. And even pre-trial had apparently been like, how can I get on this jury? He, like, really wanted to see these boys Well, fry. that's enough for a mistrial. Yeah. Usually. Yeah, you would think so. The journey to uh the journey to this through this appeal and to ultimately a mistrial being declared caroline a mistrial being declared caroline is covered in both paradise lost purgatory the third chapter and uh west of memphis both came out in 2012 west of memphis is by peter jackson uh it's kind of like paradise lost but with less metallica oh by the way <laughs> One of the first movies Metallica ever allowed their music to be used for was Paradise Lost. And so all three of the movies use it a lot. 
I mean, oh, they really, yeah, I remember. I've seen them, yeah. It's constant Metallica needle drops. Uh, West of Memphis has none of that, um, but Nick Cave and Warren Ellis wrote original music for the movie, so that's cool. That must have been exciting for you. Very fun. Very fun to hear that soundtrack uh, in a very unfun context otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that West of Memphis is more stylish, probably, and also more manipulative uh, than Paradise Lost is. Hmm. It starts out by running very quickly through some footage from the first Paradise Lost movie, right, to catch you up on the story. It covers briefly the period from the end of the trial up to 2012, uh, including the boys' various appeals and growing celebrity involvement. Guys like Eddie Vedder had gotten uh, interested in this. Henry Rollins had gotten interested in this. Johnny Depp. Um, And finally, uh, Peter Jackson is interviewed on camera 30 minutes into the film. Uh, He is also the director. He's interviewed a lot in this movie. (laughs) Hmm. Talking about how he's made it, his mission to find the real killers. And um, it seems like like part of the production budget for this film was spent on hiring a private investigator and really doing some of the legal work of this case. Interesting. Um, meanwhile, it's intercut with shots of Damien saying things like, I'm deeply invested in magic. You know, in a way, it's a blessing that I've gotten all this time to practice and study. Um, you know, so there's that stuff. He's still being Damien in 2012. Now, a pathologist hired by Peter Jackson said the wounds, both the bite, mar- the bite marks and the, uh, the scratches, A, looked post-mortem, and B, looked like they weren't made by a knife at all. To the this, scratches or the cuts or whatever? To this pathologist, it was obvious animal activity. Huh. In the film, this is followed by a segment on alligator snapping turtles, where Jackson just talks to a bunch of locals going, Oh, yeah, don't get your whole arm off! Um, so that's apparently the, huh. the turtles go for soft tissue first and we're treated yeah, just to some, like any animal. Yes. Piranhas would do the same thing. Uh, we're treated to video of them, um, chewing up a dead pig in a tank of water. Nice. So that's nice. Uh, they go for the soft tissue first. So genitals, lips, ears, nose. Uh, and then Jackson reaches out to five or six other pathologists who all say that the evidence points to animal mutilation. And not human stuff. Uh, and, and that for, for the genitalia or for the whole body? All of the cuts and scratches. So how did they die? Still the beatings. So they were, it was the boys force were still, trauma. Yes, the boys were still beaten to death. Okay. Did they ever figure out what, if there was something that, that was used to beat them? Or if it was like just fists? Blunt force trauma. Could have been fists, could have been a big heavy stick. Okay. Now, Jackson's private investigator, Rachel Geyser, narrows it down. In her mind, she, she she's going, she says to the camera, like, okay, why are we thinking, why did they go right to these boys? It's almost always someone in the family who commits a murder. Why were the families never looked at? And right. uh, a few of the dads have good, she doesn't really talk about the moms, but a few of the dads have good alibis. And she narrows it down to John Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs, Stephen Branch's uh, stepdad. And she says Byers Byers has already been investigated, you know, for years at this point in 2012. And uh, she dismisses him as a red herring. John Mark Byers himself says at one point, like, I'm six foot two, 215 pounds, and I stand here as the largest red herring in the history of Arkansas. Okay. 
uh, in this movie, he he says, I had to, ha-, talking about his ordeal, you know, when he was a suspect, he goes, I had to have 30 pubic hairs pulled out, plus the roots. And he says that they told him that everyone else, all the other parents were also getting their pubic hair pulled, but it just was a lie. Uh-huh. This poor man. And remember, his wife died of a drug over, of an overdose. Uh, his son was murdered. He's He's had an incredibly sad life. Mm-hmm. By the time the boys were making this 2009 appeal, or 2010 appeal, John Mark Byers was outside the courthouse going like, It's not justice what you've done to them boys. Yeah, I remember that switch. And I also kind of remember the switch in the perspective of the main, the Paradise Lost documentaries, because I think the second one is more about him, but then they switched to Terry in the third one, right? Yep, both. Paradise Lost and per- Paradise Lost Purgatory and West of Memphis are heavily about the possibility of, yes, the other stepdad, Terry Hobbs. Peter Jackson's private investigator uh, gets Hobbs' DNA secretly. Like they go do an, in- an interview at his house, and then while he's in the can, they steal an- a cigarette butt out of the ashtray. <laughs> um, and they find that his DNA is a very close match to the hair. Um, now, Terry had put up. Way back, he was barely interviewed by police, but he had said that a friend named David Jacoby uh, had been with him all night when they were searching for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, now, David Jacoby talks to Peter Jackson for West of Memphis, and he says, Terry came over a little after five, I guess, and he says they played guitar for about an hour. The boys were already missing at this point. Hmm. He says they played guitar for about an hour. David wanted help playing the line to Pretty Woman. And so Terry was like, well, shit, I can help you out. He sits down, uh, he sits down with him and they, he said they were playing guitar for half an hour or an hour. And then Terry around six o'clock got up and said, well, I got to go find Stevie and left. And David didn't go with him. Okay. Wow. He, David, and and the, the police never had followed up on this alibi before? Never. David, cool. Nice job, guys. David Jacoby said that he didn't see Terry again until like 830 that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one other hair from the scene that doesn't match Terry's DNA, but it does match David Jacoby's. Hmm. Now, meanwhile, this is all intercut in Peter Jackson. I told you it was manipulative, right? This is all intercut in Jackson's movie with footage of Judge Burnett, who uh, was the judge on both of the original trials, um, doing interviews saying there's no new evidence. Uh, and there's no new evidence in the case. Why would they, you know, why would there be any change now? Um, that's intercut with footage of his election signs for state senator. <laughs> also, Fogelman, the prosecutor from the original case, is meanwhile running for Arkansas Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Although he appears to have been hounded by West Memphis Three protesters at all of his campaign events and ultimately lost. Uh, it's also weird in Connecticut and for the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, justices are appointed. So it's interesting that in Arkansas they're elected. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't affect anything. John Mark Byers, like I said, has taken a full 180 by 2012. And so he's in this movie saying things like, All the roads and all the evidence lead to Terry Wayne Hobbs. (laughs) Whatever it takes to get you there, John. To coincide with the 2008 appeal, there was a celebrity concert featuring Eddie Vedder, Johnny Depp, and Patti Smith playing music and reading Damien's very literal poetry. (laughs) Mm-hmm. In 2009, it's weird that this would be a break, but Terry Hobbs sued Natalie Maines and the Dixie Chicks. 
they were just having a tough time of it, weren't they? Um, well, they like they were outspoken gals, weren't they? Sure were. And at this point, they had just come back from being exiled <laughs> for speaking out against Bush, and then uh, Terry's trying to get him exiled again because I guess Natalie had said something at some point at one of their concerts um, about how the West Memphis Three should get out, and the police should be looking at this Terry Hobbs. Mm. Now, because in order to do a lawsuit, you have to go in for legal depositions, Terry had opened himself up to be questioned under oath about the murders. Mm-hmm. And so this footage shows up in, in both of the 2012 documentaries. Peter Jackson's PI, Guy, Rachel Geyser, uh, talked to Terry's now ex-wife, Pam Hobbs. Uh, they had gotten divorced in 2002, I want to say, and Pam had remarried by 2004. Um, and she told the PI that Terry beat her up often. She said, quote, I was his punching bag. And this is Stevie's biological mom? Yes. Um, a neighbor named Mildred French, an old lady who lived around the corner, uh, had said in the 80s that she had heard uh, Pam and the baby crying and thought that Terry was beating his wife and kid. And so she complained about it. And I guess that caused some issues. And then another time, Mildred said Terry had broken into her house, grabbed her breast... She was in the shower. He came into the bathroom, grabbed her breast, and she's yelling, get out of my house! And he's going, shh, 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 shh. And finally, he ultimately just ran downstairs and out to his unit. Terry says he has no recollection of that. Um, but the police report says that he said the same thing at the time. He said, this lady's crazy. I don't know what she's talking about. Um, these are all things, and once again, I said this is a manipulative movie, this West of Memphis. Peter Jackson goes out of his way to give us a good look at Terry Hobbs um, character you know mm -hmm. it's a lot of it's a lot of character attacks on, on uh, Terry including Pam saying when this look of evil comes over him I know he's mad he can snap into a nice guy and a bad guy on a snap of a finger so why would he have killed these three children what motive did he have what Peter Jackson does is go and sp he spends a lot of time trying to convince you that Terry has a hair trigger temper. Um, in 1994, for example, Terry had backhanded Pam, which had caused her brother to come over to confront him, which caused Terry to shoot her brother in the abdomen. He died of medical complications six years later. So that's manslaughter. Um, yeah, but it was self-defense. And in Arkansas, totally. Okay. Peter Jackson trots out a friend of the family named Judy Sadler, and this makes me really uncomfortable because she's the only one who says this, but she says Terry, like, would come into Stevie's room and force him to watch Terry masturbate. Mm -hmm. And that he would make him do stuff with his sister in front of Terry. Um, they intercut footage of that with footage of the daughter, Amanda, in 2012, and she's, like, having real trouble with drugs and mental illness and can't keep it together and can't isn't allowed to take care of her kid and stuff. And so they're obviously trying to make it look like hmm. there's a history of abuse there. A neighbor named Jamie Ballard, this is really interesting, uh, was and she was a neighbor of the Branches. She's a neighbor of the Hobbses back in 1993. She says... In this documentary that at 6.30 p.m. on May 5th, 1993, she saw the boys, one on a bike and a few others running behind, and yelled to Christopher to go home because she knew that Mark Byers was out looking for his kid. And Christopher had said, I don't have to do what you tell me. 
And then uh, the boys all went off. And then she saw Terry coming after the boys and yelling to them to come home. Terry Hobbs claimed he had never seen the boys on May 5th. All the way across the line. Mm-hmm. Pam, who remembers Terry's ex-wife at this point, also says one of Stevie's knives was found in Terry's lockbox. Uh, it was a knife that Pam was certain would have been on Stevie when he died because he carried it with him all the time. Terry says under oath, well, maybe I was being a good dad and I took a knife away from a baby boy. He was a kid. <laughs> right. I mean, he shouldn't be walking around with a folding knife. Yeah. Um, so in 2010, Damien's last appeal went to the Supreme Court. This time, the boys won their appeal, and the sentence was thrown out. If the prosecutors wanted them to stay in jail, they were going to have to try them again. And the prosecutors really didn't want to try them again. Uh, both the Because the case sucks. The case sucked in the first place. The evidence has gotten worse in the intervening 18 years. And um, the public appetite for locking boys up forever because they like Metallica probably has gone down, right? There's probably less satanic You panic. would hope. And so the prosecutors went about doing everything they could not to have to take this to trial again. And in the modern legal system, the way that's often done is what's called an Alfred plea. Mm -hmm. uh, an Alfred plea is when the accused technically pleads guilty while verbally saying, I didn't do this crime. It's, it's a really weird loophole. It's, it's so everybody can kind of save face a little bit and... It's designed for if you're if you cannot you, you can't bring yourself to say you you don't want to say something say you did something you, you didn't do but you do think the state has enough evidence they can make a case against you um, this is what's done if you've seen the staircase that guy took an offered plea at the end spoiler spoiler um, Damien and Jesse were quickly ready to take this Alfred deal they'd been fighting to get out of prison their whole lives. Damien said he wasn't going to stop fighting to prove his innocence at this point, but he was happy to get out of jail. Mm -hmm. Jason Baldwin really, really did not want to take this deal. He said that he would stay in prison, let the other guys get out, and I'll stay in prison until I can wipe this off my record. I mean, even without saying it, you're still kind of saying you did it. It's, it's really complicated, and if you didn't murder three children yeah that'll weigh on you but two out of three wasn't going to be good enough for the state of arkansas and so they said if jason didn't come along with the alfred plea none of the boys got the deal now eddie vetter in west of memphis takes credit for convincing jason on this hey if you gotta get vetter in there get vetter in there he says he personally took jason aside and said look they're not going to offer time served to a bunch of baby killers. It's implied with this that they don't think they have enough to convict you. And uh, ultimately, whatever the reasons were, ultimately, um, Damien read his Alford plea. Jesse barely read his Alford plea. Jason looked right at the, into the judge's eyes and said, first of all, I didn't kill those kids. But having served 18 years for such and believing that it is in the state's best interest, as well as my own best interest, I am pleading guilty per the Alfred case. Hmm. The judge called the case tragedy on all sides. And at the end of his uh, little little talk, you know, before he bangs the gavel and sends the boys out into the world, he, said, he calls it, quote, it was justice to the best we could do. Nice. 
Pam Hobbs was waiting outside the courtroom. She said she was there to celebrate the boy's release. Is Terry still alive? Yeah, he was in July of this year, just earlier this month. Uh, they're still talking about some evidence that it never was tested from the case. <laughs> yeah, it seems like there was plenty. Yeah, da- well, Damien has never stopped going like, we got to test all this evidence. Uh, Terry Hobbs definitely did this. Oh, by the way, Damien, who in, again, Paradise Lost 2 is going, John Mark Byers definitely did this. Mm-hmm. Now he, along with all the documentarians, is like, Terry Hobbs definitely did this. Well, new evidence came to light, Sean. New shit has come to light. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, Pam Hobbs was there to celebrate the boy's release. Mark Byers was there to loudly proclaim, this isn't justice. Not until the wo- And to yell in Terry Hobbs' direction, there's the baby killer, why don't you ask him? He's a fun guy. Wow. Um, there was also a, a couple guys who called a tip line in 2012 who claimed that they were hanging out with Terry Hobbs' nephew, and he said that Terry, that his dad had told him that Terry had told him that he had committed the crimes. Uh-huh. Um, their, their names are Blake Sisk and Cody Gott. So, I don't know. You can take their testimony for what it's worth. The bottom line here, this is what I want to get to. I'm not saying that Terry Hobbs killed those kids. Why are you winking at me so hard? <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. I'm very serious. Because I think it's unfair. I mean, look at Paradise Lost 2. Paradise Lost 1 is about these boys have been convicted on basically no evidence. It's not fair that they're in prison. We shouldn't convict people just on suspicion. Also, we kind of suspect this guy killed the kids. <laughs> yes. Then the second one is just like fully about we suspect Mark Byers killed the kids. And then both the Paradise Lost 3 and this Peter Jackson one are just like Terry Hopps definitely killed these kids. And it's not it's kind of what was done to Damien and Jesse and Jason. Now, it is important to note that there's probably more physical evidence for John Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs than there is for Jason, Jesse, and Damien. And more of a history of violence. Certainly with Terry. Yeah, with both of them. Uh, yeah, I think John's violence was more of the, the typical yes. Southern dad in 1993. Yes, but I mean, but- especially Terry. Yes. Um, yeah, he was a, a, a wife beater. So, at least according to Pam... I think we can trust her on this one. Yeah, I mean, I I generally do, yeah. So, anyway, the point is, there's obviously more physical evidence for both of these other guys uh, than there was for the guys who went to prison for 18 years for this crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's kind of crazy. I do think the documentaries go too far the other way, or too far the same way, really, just pointed in a different direction. You go, um, all right, we've got a couple of shreds of evidence. It's these guys. And the point they mean to make is, it's not those guys. Yeah. So that's where that's where I'd like to leave it. And by the way, I'm not... We None of us are 100% certain what happened in those woods. It could have been Mr. Bojangles. Could have been the ice cream truck driver. Could have been Terry Hobbs. It could have been Damien and the boys. But I don't think it was. And I don't think it was John Mark Byers either. That guy's had a really hard run of luck. Mm-hmm. Amazing Grace Amazing, amazing Grace
Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time Podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries. We're, we're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh, yeah, that's his nickname, finger-banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. <laughs> the only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker. Do you have what it takes to go into the mind of a serial killer? Or solve a horrific case? (laughs) Hi, everybody. When you join Hunt a Killer... You receive a box full of cryptic clues mailed to you each month to test your detective skills and challenge even the most brilliant minds in a game designed to give you a journey into the mind of a killer so you can escape with the answers you need. And I hope you do escape. Input our code SCARYSQUAD20 for 20% off when you sign up for your first subscription box at huntakiller.com and find out if you have the guts to hunt a killer. The guts. That's the code Scary Squad Twenty S C A R Y S Q U A D two zero for two zero percent off at huntakiller.com. www.huntakiller.com. Hunt a killer. Join the hunt today. Once again, it's me and my boo. In a fascinating story out of California, a three-year-old boy allegedly spotted a ghost during a day trip with his family to the Sierra National Forest. Ghost! <laughs> and this sighting was so compelling that it was investigated by authorities for reasons you might not expect. Is it because the ghost was indecently exposing itself? Ugh, no. Local news reported that Jake and Victoria Gorba headed up to Shut-Eye Peak in their four-wheeler on Wednesday and stopped to eat lunch in a meadow. They stopped to neck. They were with their children. And this is when their three-year-old son, Caden, began to speak to someone who could not be seen. Ruh-roh. Quote, he was just in our car and he was pointing at a certain spot in the meadow, said Victoria. Caden relayed that there was a woman lying face down with her legs straight up in the air in the direction he was pointing in, and she was unable to speak or move and needed their help. Face down, legs straight up in the air? How does that work? Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe, like, bent up? Like, bent at the knee? Oh, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. Jake and Victoria could see nothing, but Caden was insistent. He kept saying, trust me, trust me, mom. And I was like, I trust you, but you know, I believe you 100%, said Victoria. This incident was so creepy that they decided to head home early, posting about the weird occurrence on Facebook when they got back. Once they posted, they found out that there was actually a missing woman from the area within a five-mile radius of where they were. The woman, Sandra Hughes, had gone missing in June of 2020. Apparently, Caden's description of the woman to his parents, a black shirt, blue jeans, and blue hair, 
matched exactly what Sandra was reported to be wearing at the time of her disappearance. It was at this point that Madera County Sheriff Corporal Chris Williams spotted the post and contacted the family to further investigate. On Thursday of this week, two Madera County Sheriff's deputies accompanied Jake and Caden to the area to look around, and though they found no new evidence, the case does remain open. If, if they can find her ghost, maybe they can, it can testify in court. You get another ghost in court story. <laughs> maybe. That's a, that's a Patreon mini-sode. Oh, guys, get covered. on Patreon. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty fascinating story, and um, I hope Sandra's found at some point. Me too. Do you think the name Caden attracts ghosts? Caden? Caden. Why? I don't know. Any of those super super new, oh, like new little boy names. Like, do you think Hunters get a lot of ghosts? Aidens. Bentley. Bentleys. Oh, Bentleys haunted. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be forever grateful. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, and Ryan Regan. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. He's back to his pretty regular updates over there, and it's awesome. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> Hi, podcast listeners. I'm Carol Costello, a former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This January, I'm launching a podcast about one of the first cases I ever covered as a journalist. It's one that stuck with me all of these years, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. It's a true crime series about an amazing woman named Phyllis Cottle, who defied torture and death and brought a fierce rage to the quest to find her attacker. Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.